Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, no surprise there. Samuel Moyne will delve into the political and linguistic complexities of calling Trump a fascist and emerges with the conclusion that it's neither enlightening nor helpful. And at the bottom of the hour, Juliet Shore will report on her studies of the so-called sharing economy. First, is Trump a fascist? For a lot of people left of center, both liberal and radical, it's a matter of passionate intensity to say yes. The phrase passionate intensity, by the way, is from Yeats's famous poem, The Second Coming, which people often quote without realizing that Yeats had deep fascist sympathies, which are reflected in the poem. Samuel Moyne, a professor of both law and history at Yale, dissents. He's written on the topic for the New York Review of Books, among other places. Here he is to explain his doubts. Samuel Moyne. People seem very invested in uh, applying the label fascist to Trump. I'm not sure precisely what they mean by that other than saying he's very bad. And I'm sure you'd agree he's rather bad. But uh, what is the uh, utility, either in language or politics, of applying that label? How important is it? For what we call the resistance, it's very important. I think that since 2016, but really as the elections approach, they have wanted to signal just how much they hate the man. And of the words out there that you can choose, um, this one has a lot of charge. I would have less of a problem with using it if it if it didn't distract us from the nature of this presidency and mischaracterize it. And it doesn't seem like the charge works that well to get more people to oppose him. So it's kind of a failure on on both fronts, analytically and politically. Well, there is an element of blackmail to it, the way a lot of mainstream Democrats say you got to vote the fascist out, and if you don't uh, share their sense of urgency, uh, then uh, you're soft on fascism. So there's there's Correct. an element of political blackmail to it that is not very helpful. That's true. That's true. Well, I, again, if it worked, there might be more of a case for it. But remember, Barack Obama said that democracy is on the ballot in 2016, and the fact that Joe Biden said the same thing in his acceptance speech, it's it's as if they are not registering that you can't keep saying it. It actually has to be meant seriously or it loses its power. And I'm just not sure how many people out there believe the regime itself is at stake this time. If they could make the case more credibly and get more voters to oppose the man, I, again, I might think differently about it, but it doesn't seem to be working that way. One of the reasons the word bothers me is that uh, it turns Trump into something of a foreign import. And he's so American in so many ways, like the nativism, the hucksterism, the hostility to expertise. Calling him a fascist or even a Russian puppet really minimizes how American he is. Completely. You know, I think uh, that's been central to the case against the label fascist. As a result, a lot of those on the other side have kind of shifted their argument and claimed that no, actually... The Ku Klux Klan was the first fascist organization. European fascists drew a lot on American white supremacy and so forth. But we all know that the use of the term does suggest that something bad has happened to America, which, of course, beat fascism in World War II. You're right that the charge really plays on American exceptionalism. It implies that America is a place where this is not supposed to happen. And it whitewashes all of the forces, not just the unholy ones you reference, but like all the mainstream policies in recent decades that made Trump credible to 60 million voters. That's where we have to focus. And calling him a fascism, aside from being misleading, takes our eye off the ball. Well, you know, this is a country founded on slavery and Indian genocide. You know, in recent decades, we killed three million in Southeast Asia, a million in Iraq. We had you know, the history of Jim Crow, uh, mass incarceration. There's just so much hideous brutality here that's no one is exactly. responsible for but us. Um, Yet no one called George W. Bush a fascist. Right. 
You also have pointed to the fact that uh, we've been investing the presidency with all these imperial powers for decades now, and uh, Trump just waltzed into this office that has just considerable powers that we might want to rethink. I think that's right. There's kind of a, a, a double irony to the fascist charge. As you say, on one hand, he's just doing what we what we let the presidents do in many cases, exploiting plenary power over immigration sending the military wherever he wants without any check from Congress or any uh, other entity. On the other hand, whenever he does things that are genuinely scary, almost unfailingly, he's checked or he changes his mind or he pulls back. I mean, that's what happened in the Portland case, which really is the recent event that led to a renaissance in the fascism obsession. So I think we have to keep in mind that on the one hand, if we're concerned about presidential power, we made it and as a bipartisan choice. And on the other, what's amazing is how little of that power he actually follows through and uses. If Trump were truly a fascist, would his response to COVID been what it was? Presumably not. I mean, we have heard from 2016 that he was just in his lair waiting for the opportunity to strike. I mean, that's the Reichstag fire analogy. And if you could ever have had a situation to justify the assertion of presidential power, this was it. And yet he goes down in history. I think he will be written about by historians as someone who didn't exert power when the crucial moment came. Now, that tells us that we can argue against a powerful presidency, but sometimes we need one. And so we need to figure out how to get the balance right. But to convict him for the powerful presidency that we created when he didn't even use or abuse its powers when he should have in the face of this disease is it strains credibility. Yeah, I don't think actual Nazis would have tolerated that motorcycle rally in South Dakota. Right. <laughs> that sounds right to me. Well, I think there's some worry uh, that I even share that uh, he's, he's undermining all the mechanisms of accountability, firing the inspector generals and, you know, having um, so many acting officials. Uh, and he would love to just be able to operate without any kind of check. So how seriously eroded are those, you know, mechanisms of accountability and, uh, and uh, reining in the power of the president? From what I can tell, he's broken very few laws, but he's changed norms around how far presidents can go, what kind of devious steps they can take. In fairness, we have to acknowledge that he's been able to do that because we never kind of seriously legalized the presidency in the first place. There was an attempt, obviously, after Vietnam and Watergate. But all those attempts are, have been spent for a couple of decades in the area of war making and some of these other areas involving governance. Assuming Biden wins, there will be a big bipartisan movement to follow through where we should have long ago and make sure the president isn't, has to release his medical and tax information, that he can't engage in an extraordinary amount of nepotism and self-dealing. Those are like vanilla reforms that ought to be no-brainers. And the amazing thing is that it took Donald Trump to lead us to do them. Now, then there are other big issues like the president's war-making abilities and his plenary control over immigration. I don't see a lot of signs that there's going to be any attempt to correct that, even by those who call him a fascist. Well, you know, Obama exploited a lot of those powers and Biden, I assume, will want to reserve the right to do so. So there's no doubt that Trump's an evil man and we need to learn the lessons. It's The sad thing is the lessons seem to be pretty minor and they go to very obvious governance reforms that we've needed to make for a long time. Michael Cohen said that uh, Trump envies Putin for his ability to turn Russia into one big business to benefit himself and his cronies. And we see that with Trump. Uh, and now he's, you know, the, the use of the Department of Justice to defend him in a, in a personal uh, lawsuit. Does that seem more accurate than this fascist label? I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, he seems like a hugster or a mafia boss or like a racket man. That's familiar to him from growing up in the 1950s and 60s in 
the outer boroughs, a lot of shady deals were made and a lot of personal power was exercised by non-governmental officials who ran the city. And his father was part of that world. That's all very plausible. I don't think he's a Democrat at heart. He doesn't believe in liberal democracy. But I think the verdict on the Trump administration has to be that he's been allowed to be a mafia boss and huckster because we never wrote rules anticipating someone like this could win the presidency. But we also have all these other things we've done to the presidency, inflated its powers. The verdict has to be that when it came to the big things like war, responding to the pandemic in potentially autocratic ways, he just wasn't interested. He was checked. The military has opposed him for years, whether they're serving or whether they've retired and are now trying to bring him down. It's greater insubordination than we've seen from the military than since MacArthur. So the final verdict will have to be about how weak Trump was in practice, partly by choice. Now, you've described him as weak. What do you mean by that? If we start with the assumption that he has these autocratic instincts, which may be true, I'm not sure it's true because you'd have to have enough consistency to actually live them out. If we assume, though, that he has these autocratic instincts, we just it just seems like he would have gotten a lot farther. But whenever there's an outcry, just take the Portland situation. He puts together this ragtag team of folks that his lawyers think he can do, again, under extant authority that was involved in our creation of the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. And he sends out this police force and... After the hue and cry, he pulls them out. Same thing with the clearing of the park outside the White House, which was taken to be like an almost Reichstag fire type event. But then it turned out that the General Mark Milley, who actually went out with him to when he held the Bible up, said he totally regretted his action. And, and the defense secretary said, no, I would never send the U.S. military into combat in American cities. That level of distance from the president saying that they wouldn't follow his orders, again, is, I mean, is, it's an extraordinary thing. It's not what you'd expect in a fascist state. You'd expect the fascist leader no, to have the no. full support of the military. When those things happened, I, you know, I, I wondered, you know, is there any parallel in Benito Mussolini's regime or Adolf Hitler's where they there were ab actually struggles, especially in Nazi Germany, but Hitler mastered the military and they kowtowed to him. They were willing to go to World War II, a crackpot thing, because he said so. It's remarkable how power has slipped through Trump's fingers. Um, he hasn't been able to exercise even the, the level of power that is on paper and that the prior presidents have used. I'm speaking with the historian and law professor Samuel Moyne. The contrast with uh, the classical fascists uh, is striking because Hitler consolidated power very rapidly. What he was in Correct. office two weeks before the Enabling Act was passed, and like Correct. every institution of German society was Nazified quite quickly. Correct. Uh, we don't see that now. We see a lot of you know a lot of opposition to Trump and his uh, everything he stands for. That's right. I mean, civil society has never been more active and oppositional which is a good thing, but it should lead us to rethink our analogies, especially to 1933. If you take an event like Charlottesville, where you had a couple hundred kids from eight, 11 states or Portland, there's just no comparison to the March on Rome, you know, tens of thousands of black shirts or 1933, where the private army, the paramilitary that Hitler had enjoyed for years swelled to two million card-carrying men in 1933. And, and that's not to get to the Wehrmacht. It, we're just talking about the Sturmabteilung, the SA. And the idea that these Trumpian hijinks compare to that in the least, it's just absurd on its face. Now, he is assembling uh, like some kind of armed support movement, though. You know, the Proud Boys or the Patriot Prayer guys in the Northwest. Uh, oh, and he has an yeah. awful lot of support from police 
if not the military. Uh, so that kind of stuff gets scary. Look, the police in America are scary and ar armed groups, you know, dating back to the post-Vietnam era or even before. They've been in our headlines for decades now. And it's true that they support Trump. So it's not off the table that some scary stuff could happen. But I'm just making a, a, a comparison between the extraordinary activation of the center and left in civil society in opposition to Donald Trump and the kind of ragtag support that Trump has from the various groups that you name. And then the situation in 1933, where the opposition, the communist opposition especially, was sent to Dachau, which was opened in spring 1933. No comparison. And the paramilitary support that Hitler enjoyed. It's just like, I, I just can't understand how you can make a comparison. That doesn't mean the ragtag forces that might come to Trump's support are not scary. And in an American context, they're toxic and they have the, a lot of deep American roots we ought to investigate seriously. There's a great book on this called Bringing the War Home by a University of Chicago historian about white supremacist militias that have been kind of in formation for decades. But that doesn't make America on the brink of a fascist situation. Hitler also had uh, support of a good bit of big business interests in Germany. And Trump, he certainly bought off uh, a lot of business opposition uh, with tax cuts and deregulation. But they're not like an enthusiastic member of his fan club. I mean, what, what does that make a difference? I think I think it does. I mean, Hitler's support in the end included a lot of big business and a lot of people who were so afraid of the Bolshevik threat and upset by the Great Depression that they were willing to scuttle the regime. I don't think we have the same levels of support for Trump right now in any of those groups. As you say, big business is ambivalent. Of course, they enjoy his policies, but I think now they can trust that J Joe Biden is not going to be that inimical to their interests. And then you've got the working class, which I think r rightly sees that Trump has not followed through on his promises to give them some love. So there are a lot of worrisome things happening. And, and, and what we're talking about is not at all about minimizing or trivializing the evil of this man or the pathologies of American society. But you're right that when you begin probing the kinds of reasons so sociologically that fascism arose in Europe, there's just a limited parallel. Now, there's no doubt the kind of racism and xenophobia is there. And that's part of our experience as, as Americans for, for decades. Yeah, that's, that's as American as apple pie. That's Exactly. It is in the open in certain ways more than it had been. People felt it had been quarantined. I think black people did not because they were on the receiving end of it for all those decades. And of course, liberals and conservatives built the carceral state and so forth. And police brutality is something that got baked into broken windows and the romance of policing that big city mayors, including in New York, obviously Rudy Giuliani, Trump's friend, pioneered. So, you know, we'd have to get very clear on what is new. I think there's a strong case that there's more naked racism in the public sphere than people had thought was was going to be possible in the 21st century. And yet, like be, racism is not fascism. It's a it's a component of it. I was uh, looking at March's 18th Brumaire, and by the way, um, Election Day 2016 was 18 Brumaire in the old <laughs> French Revolutionary oh, calendar, which is <laughs> yeah. isn't that funny? Um, but uh, you know, towards the end of it, uh, Marx writes uh, uh, of Bonaparte that he produces anarchy in the name of order, and that really sounds very Trumpy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's right, and you know, we can imagine situations of the kind that Marx investigated there, in which you do get a horrendous outcome in a series of steps. I'm not at all interested in denying that bad things can happen in America or that democracy in America is sustainable no matter what. Anything can happen. But it seems like we're in the early days of that. And if we recall anything from that text that's relevant now, I think it's really more the beginning where 
we're told that sometimes we get fascism as a tragedy. This neo-fascism that Trump supposedly incarnates is much more farce so far, absent other developments. There's another fear, though, which is that we have this big election coming up. Presumably what you'd want to do is win big, engage your fellow citizens, figure out what policies would create a big majority coalition. But the fascism rhetoric actually distracts us from that task. This is the least substantive election campaign as a policy matter in my lifetime. And everyone's talking about what we're going to do if Trump comes close enough to claim victory, as if that were a necessity, as if we didn't have the possibility of practicing democracy to stave off that eventuality. It's very disturbing because the fascism analogy could have this kind of self-fulfilling character, and that's what I'm worried about now. If it seems likely, although far from certain, Biden wins, what would the effects be of viewing Trump as this kind of fascist anomaly? And then we're just going back to normal. Is that the idea? I guess. I mean, I, you know, I've tried to not very successfully coin the term Trump washing, which is where we say all the stuff that led to Trump, he's going to play the scapegoat for it. And we'll we'll pretend that nothing went wrong except a kind of accident. And we can just go on and blame him for all of our prior sins. And uh, that's obviously a recipe for disaster because they're not going away just because he does. And in fact, to the extent Biden, you know, returns to centrist policy, it's just a recipe for a recurrence of the same because you haven't faced the forces and pathologies that made a Trump possible. Yeah, I mean, it was precisely that kind of weak center-left politics of, you know, Clinton, Obama, Hillary Clinton. I mean, that that really helped produce Trump. And people seem to forget that and view Biden as a refuge from the, this chaos that's been produced. But uh, they forget that uh, that sort of uh, politics is productive of that chaos. I think that's right. Biden has chosen to run a decency campaign, but the people who voted for Trump were upset about indecent policy. And the rest of us ought to be upset about it, too. The idea that in politics, decency is principally about the personality of the leaders and not about like the virtue and vice of the policies that they devise is very troubling because, you know, I don't care how decent personally and friendly and nice Bush and Obama were. They're on the hook for the policies that led to their successor and if we don't change those policies, we'll just repeat the same cycle. Yeah, if we see a cabinet populated by the likes of, you know, Jamie Dimon and Susan Rice, I mean, we're, what progress will, will we have made? Exactly. Very little. And, I, but, and yet I think that's where we're heading, which doesn't, I mean, I'm personally voting for Biden. You know, I respect those who say that they can't bring themselves to vote for Biden, even while they would never vote for Trump. But I, I think we should vote for Biden holding our noses and and starting to warn people of the the perfect storm we may create by doing so if the Democratic Party doesn't budge. That was Samuel Moyne, a professor of both law and history at Yale. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Little Hitler by Nick Lowe from his 1978 masterpiece, The Jesus of Cool. 
Next, the sharing economy, as publicists like to call it. Platform-based enterprises like Uber, Instacart, and Airbnb. There was a lot of hype around the sector some years ago. It was flexible and liberating, a revolutionary model of labor. A lot of the bloom was off that rose even before the pandemic era. In a new book, After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back, the product of a decade of research, Juliet Shore, an economist and sociologist who teaches at Boston College, looks at the nature of the work and who does it. Although Shore wrote the book and her name is the only one on the cover, she worked with a large team of researchers who are, I should say, explicitly and generously acknowledged, which isn't always the case in this business, and I just want to make clear what a collaborative project this was. Juliet Shore. The discourse around the uh, sharing economy reminds me a lot of the new economy discourse of the late 90s. Uh, tech with then was going to lead to a world of flatter hierarchies, more meaningful work, self-reliance. A lot of that fell apart with the early 2000s dot-com bust, but it seemed revived in some way with the sharing economy a decade later. These discourses are always a mix of reality, fantasy, wish fulfillment, and sales pitch. But what, what is the, the discourse now around the sharing economy, the gig economy? I think you're absolutely right that that Silicon Valley cyber utopianism, it's sometimes called, discourse was very prominent in the early days of the sharing economy. And it was part of what drew people to it. My team and I started studying this sector just as it was emerging. And a lot of people, not just the founders and the investors and the consultants, but also ordinary users believed in the transformative power of these platforms. There's a lot of disappointed hope now. Um, I would say there's also a lot of cynicism. People have seen this sector go off the rails, and now the dominant discourse is much more about their predatory behavior. So it's been a complete turnaround from everybody's going to win with this it's a great alternative to global capitalism, too. This is kind of the worst of hypercapitalism. The sharing economy emerged just as we were coming out of the 2008 crisis. And in those days, a lot of recent college grads, for example, would be end up driving cabs or cleaning houses or you know doing task rabbit stuff. Has that changed over time? <laughs> well, now the economy is in terrible shape again. But with the recovery of the subsequent decade, did that, uh, that demographic change? It did to a certain extent. So what you had, particularly in the lower wage sectors and the two big ones, and of course, right, being ride hail, which is the biggest platform or area of the sharing economy and delivery, primarily prepared food delivery. When the sharing economy started, it was overwhelmingly white, high educated middle class. In part, that was because of the, the technologies and not everyone had the technologies to access it. But as it went mobile, that sort of changed. And so what you've seen on ride hail and delivery platforms, especially, is a workforce that is getting more and more black and brown and immigrant. It's getting less educated. It's moving much more toward trying to support families or get a full-time living on these platforms. So very different from the early stages when the college students, either who graduated and couldn't find a job, so used it more as a stopgap, or many people who were still in college or who had other jobs and turned to this for extra. The workforce in this world is very diverse, but it, there's a mix of people, some for whom it's their primary source of income and some for whom it's just a way to pick up some extra cash. How does those those differences shape people's experience of, uh, of the sharing economy? Yes, this was one of the biggest findings from our research, which is that if you are somebody who is doing this on top of another income, so we call those supplemental earners. We asked many people that we interviewed, what do you use the income for? Uh, do you use it to pay your basic expenses or is it extra? The people for whom it was extra have much better experiences. They're much happier on the platforms. They get more of the flexibility that the platforms purport to offer they're much less subject to what scholars call algorithmic management, meaning that you have to do what the algorithm or the app tells you to do. So, for example, our, some of our bicycle and uh, car couriers, delivery folks, they don't follow the rules. 
You have to tell the app whether you're on bike or car, they'll put in uh, the wrong thing or they won't get out of their cars at night uh, and they make the customers come down and get the food completely forbidden by the app. They don't use the bags, the stickers, etc. So those are people who do it their way. On the other hand, if you are what we call a dependent earner and you need that income to pay your rent, to get your food, you are much more worried about your ratings. You're much more worried about what's called deactivation. It's basically getting fired by the platform. If there are complaints about you, if your ratings go down, and you also lose the flexibility to work when you want because you have to work when there's demand. And on ride hail and food delivery, there's only demand certain times of day. So you you got to follow that schedule. And increasingly, these drivers are there all the time because they can't afford to miss any fares. So as the companies slash the rates and really squeeze the drivers, it's turned into a really hellish kind of work. Yeah, it seems like Uber, for example, they're really nice and generous when they enter a city. And then as they uh, spend some time there, they get nastier. Is that uh, what you found? That seems to be the case. The other thing is it depends on how much competition they have from Lyft. So, for example, I live in Boston. That's where we did our driver interviews. Lyft has always been – it's one of its strongest cities. So Uber has had to treat the drivers a little bit better than it does in places where Lyft has much less of a presence. So they're they're super market-oriented. But the other thing that's happened is there's been a what we call the downward trajectory or basically just things getting worse over time. A couple of reasons. One, they're recruiting more and more drivers to the platform and demand hasn't increased enough. But also the pressure, especially on the ride hail companies to make money from their investors has led them to squeeze the drivers. And you can see in the data where Uber squeezed first, that allowed Lyft to get a lot more drivers. So Uber had to let up. And once when Lyft had a lot more drivers, it squeezed more. So they're just locked in this intense competition in which they're both competing for drivers, but also trying to figure out how much more of the fare they can take from the drivers. Well, they also have a fundamental problem that they're pricing below cost and they're subsidizing uh, the rides to some degree. Could they survive if they actually <laughs> charge full cost? I think they could survive, but at a much smaller scale than what they are. So the problem is, as you say, you're absolutely right. They subsidize these rides. It's what we call predatory pricing, uh, just designed to wipe out the competition. And by the way, in Uber's IPO documents, they did explicitly say public transportation is part of their competition. They're aiming for what's called market dominance. So they want to wipe everybody else out. And once they have a monopoly, they can raise the prices. At really low prices, many more people will take private vehicles, but there are alternatives. People can walk, they can cycle, they can take their own car, perhaps they can use public transportation, or they can just not go anywhere. And surveys show that a majority of the trips that are taken were substituted for those alternatives. So when the ride hail companies put the prices up to full cost pricing, a lot of that market's going to disappear. Because people are not going to pay, you know, what were taxi rates or so forth. The taxi industry, you know, it, it has a certain market, but it's not the size of the ride hail market, which just drastically expanded the number of private trips taken. And which greatly increased uh, car traffic and pollution additionally. Right. Pollution, miles driven, car registrations, congestion, and also traffic fatalities. Traffic fatalities had been falling for years and years and years. And there's a great study charting when Uber and Lyft came into each city showing how there's a turnaround there and fatalities start rising. You um, lay out a hierarchy uh, of these sharing companies, gig companies, whatever you want to call them. At the top, Airbnb, where you're uh, renting out a capital asset, a spare capital asset, or some people do it as their full-time business, but it is a capital asset, versus something that's pure labor, like delivery, like Postmates. Could you talk about that distinction? A lot of the conversation and the writing about the sharing economy has sort of treated it as one thing. There's some logic in that, which is they all have a sort of basic technological infrastructure, but 
when you look at who's on the platforms, how much the services command in the market in terms of their prices, the level of autonomy that the earners have, it really varies. And it's, uh, as you said, a hierarchy, just like the regular labor market. If you have more capital, whether it's physical capital, financial or human capital, you generally get a better outcome in the labor market than if you have just skills that are very widely available in the population, like being able to drive or clean houses. So what we found is that the platform economy replicates that conventional labor market in a lot of ways. Earnings from Airbnb are much, much higher than they are from the other platforms. A platform like TaskRabbit, which we we studied a lot, uh, which has really highly uh, educated earners on it, and also many of them with specialized skills, those people make really good hourly rates. When you get to ride hail or food delivery, you're talking about rates that after expenses, you know, many researchers uh, have calculated are below minimum wage. There's an educational gradation and there's a color ordering there where the higher up you go, the whiter the earner group. Also, well, uh, Airbnb neighborhoods. So uh, you have some more, uh, research on the um, the racial composition of a neighborhood and the uh, the uh, the rental rates, right? Yes. So what's interesting about Airbnb is that the hosts and the guests are pretty positive about it. And the problems with Airbnb are much more with the people who aren't using it. But the people who live in the cities where it's got really gotten really popular, it's taken a lot of rental housing off the market. It's raised rents. It's transformed neighborhood. And there's a, a process of what's been called racial gentrification going on with Airbnb, where white, more middle income people move into a neighborhood that has pretty cheap rents. They start airbnb that raises the rents, pushes out the longtime residents. We look also at discriminatory outcomes on Airbnb. I think a lot of people have heard about the the discrimination against guests. So if uh, black guests, for example, are much more likely to be turned down by hosts. And there's discrimination in the other direction, too, which is that hosts of color, black hosts especially, and black male hosts earn lower rates than uh, whites. We have ongoing research on that. We also found discrimination in the rating system. So if you're a black host, you get lower ratings. If you're a, a host in a black area or a high non-white area, we're, we're now coding the data to actually uh, look at the individual's race. But we did it by uh, census, census tracts. I'm speaking with the economist and sociologist Juliet Shore, author of After the Gig, just out from the University of California Press. Of course, these operations are embedded in a society that's just full of hierarchies by class and race and gender and everything. So it's really not surprising that they would reflect those. Although some of the ideology around the enterprise was that uh, it would uh, overturn those or resist them to some degree. Absolutely. And there's a big part of the appeal of the sharing economy was it was going to provide access. You had economists writing about how low income people were going to be the ones who benefited most from this because it's as a new entity and also one with very low barriers to entry. It doesn't take a lot to sign up for these platforms. The idea was that the institutional racism and classism of the conventional economy would be gone and it would be really a uh, a much more egalitarian space. The other hope was that the ratings and reputation systems, because they provide data on the actual characteristics of the people, would reduce what economists call statistical discrimination, where people discriminate against a whole category of people. And while there's some of that that's happened, it's also true that the sharing economy has enabled new forms of discrimination. So, for example, in lodging, because anti-discrimination laws don't apply, it's actually legal for those hosts to turn people down because of the color of their skin, something that's not legal for hotels to do. This is the, the Mrs. Murphy exception. Exactly. The Mrs. Murphy exception for very small B's and B's that the idea that if you know bringing people into your home, you have the right to discriminate. But now, taxis are another interesting thing. Of course, famously, 
very hard for blacks to get taxis and taxi drivers were much less willing to go into black neighborhoods. Ride Hail has reduced this discrimination. It hasn't totally eliminated it. The sharing economy has reproduced some forms of dis- of racial discrimination. It's reduced others. And I think on the class side, in the early days, it provided a lot of opportunity for middle class people, especially something like Airbnb. 10% of their hosts are teachers whose salaries don't cover their expenses, so they've got to Airbnb their homes. It's also at the expense of the traditional uh, labor forces in some of these areas, which were much more blue-collar, lower-educated. Yeah, and there's the effect on uh, what they call the incumbent or legacy operations. The taxi industry in New York has been decimated. The hotel industry has been hurt by Airbnb. Um, there's collateral damage that's not uh, always uh, considered when uh, we evaluate the success or failure of these things. Yeah. I mean, and that rhetoric of everybody's going to win from this conveniently left out all the people who are going to lose their jobs. It's been most severe in taxis, in hotels. To some extent, the market has is divided by business travel, which is still has hotel domination, Airbnb being a little bit more in the personal. Um, but then you, you've got other things happening where informal markets are getting formalized, like a platform like care.com, which is hosting babysitters or childcare and elder care and increasingly cleaning and so forth. What used to be an informal market now increasingly formalized, which has pluses and minuses um, for the workers, uh, but of course is lucrative for the companies. Now, of course, this uh, all happened after your book was written, but um, do you have any information what the pandemic and the Great Recession, the Greater Recession, uh, have done to uh, these businesses? Yes. So I have a new uh, research team that I'm working with, a group of people at Northeastern, and we've been interviewing shoppers, grocery shoppers and food delivery, the uh, not prepared food, but grocery delivery and other kinds of delivery workers. So two big things I think have happened. One is you got a big shift in demand because ride hail collapsed, delivery expanded, grocery shopping expanded. So um, some people got really hurt. Uh, A lot of the ride hail drivers have moved over into food delivery and you've just had a big influx of people onto platforms like Instacart, which does the grocery shopping. So there's that change in consumer demand. The the second thing is that the excess supply that tends to be chronic on these platforms now, excess supply of workers, which leads workers to, you know, not be able to get as much work as they want, has really intensified on some of these platforms. There was a story that came out two days ago about Whole Foods delivery drivers who are going to the stores, putting their phones in trees right next to the stores because the algorithm picks the driver who's closest to the store, whose phone is closest to the store. They're not supposed to be doing that, but that's how desperate they are. We've interviewed plenty of people who sit in the parking lots of the stores trying to get the the work. And then the Instacart shoppers we've interviewed are complaining about people who who use bots to, to snag the slots. So that chronic excess supply, that's always been there, but it's really magnified now. Well, some of the promises of this were about community. I recall there's some foundational myth from the uh, the woman who founded uh, uh, TaskRabbit about wanting a cup of sugar from a neighbor, and that's what her inspiration was or something like that. Has this promise of community or deepened community come through at all? For the most part, I'd say no, but there are some ways in which it has, I think. So you're right. Something like TaskRabbit, for the most part, has become commercialized enterprise in which connections between the client and the worker are are pretty minimal. Although we do have some TaskRabbits who said they made friends. So there's some of that. Ride hail, it completely disappeared uh, at the beginning, especially with Lyft. You would come in, you gave a fist bump, you sat in the front, you connected with the driver. So now it's I love this story that it's gotten so far away from that, that Uber put a button on its app that they called it. Well, 
people call it the shut up and drive button. They termed it the mute button. But if you're a passenger and you don't want to talk to your driver, you just hit the mute button. The Airbnb hosts who still have people coming into their home while they're there, many of them are still interested in the social connection. And we did find a lot of Airbnb hosts who enjoyed that part of it. Typically, it's people from other countries. And so they want that sort of cultural interaction, much less so just hosting people from the U.S. There's an Airbnb for cars. It's called Turo. Most people don't want to meet the owner of the car. Blah Blah Car, which is a, is a European service, which is uh, long distance rides, getting a getting a seat in somebody's car where they're going a long distance. That one has led to social interaction. And of course, couch surfing, which is a f- Airbnb free. You don't have to pay for it. That one has fostered social connection. There's a lot of promise in these things, despite their brutalities in the real world. Um, so we might want to think about how we can turn the technology towards uh, better use than uh, <laughs> extreme exploitation. A couple of options. One, um, just old-fashioned regulation. What are the possibilities of regulating an entity like Uber or, or Airbnb so uh, the externalities are not so uh, brutal and the effects on the workers are not so brutal? Yeah, beginning in 2018, you see some real momentum for regulation. Uber and Lyft get regulated in New York. The Taxi and Limousine Commission put in a minimum wage, about $27 an hour gross with roughly $17 an hour after expenses, hourly minimum wage. The drivers have to make that. Uh, They also put a vehicle cap in so you don't get too many drivers. Seattle's considering doing that at the moment. And Airbnb, a lot of regulations uh, around Airbnb came in beginning in 2018 that really tried to clamp down on illegal rentals, people doing commercial renting and, and pulling properties off the market, people operating what are called illegal or ghost hotels. There's a certain uh, degree of regulation that I think has begun to happen and, and probably will continue More far-reaching regulation, however, we're really in a fight about that right now. In California, the legislature passed a bill called AB5, which reclassifies Uber and Lyft drivers and a lot of delivery workers as employees rather than independent contractors, which is what almost all the platforms uh, use for their earners. And there's a high-stakes game of chicken going on in California right now. The companies threatened to turn the apps off. Uh, Actually, on a Thursday morning, Lyft said we're turning off the app tonight uh, because they didn't want to comply with the court order that said they have to follow the law. I mean, God forbid they should have to follow the law. They've been disobeying the law is a big part of their business model. Yeah. You know, in, in Massachusetts, we have a law that says these people should be employees that was passed in the 1990s and they've ignored it. Since the beginning, uh, our attorney general finally filed a suit against them. So they've got the same kind of thing going on here as in California. But they're pouring huge amounts of money into a ballot initiative uh, in November called Proposition 22 to overturn the law or basically to take themselves out of it. So we'll see what happens. The financial disparity in the no and yes campaigns on 22 is extraordinary. It's really hard when the corporations pour so much money into something and and dominate the advertising and the marketing. Well, then they can also mobilize support through the app. Yeah. It's interesting what's happened. If they'd had a an initiative like this five years ago, the drivers would have been pretty opposed to it. What looks like it happened in California was conditions got so bad for the drivers that even though they prefer to be independent contractors, a large number of them basically concluded there's no way we're going to get a decent deal if we're ICs and we've got to go for employment status. We need a minimum wage. We need workers comp. We need unemployment insurance. We need some protections. So, you know, a lot of workers started supporting this shift. I think a majority of drivers are probably uh, in favor of it, although if it means they're losing their livelihoods, all bets are off on that. But of course, there is a very vocal group and they're involved in some pretty ugly tactics. I've got a friend who's been harassed 
by the pro-Proposition 22 folks, they're really, really hostile to the idea of employment status. And then uh, finally, um, it doesn't have to be these privately owned platforms subsidized by venture capitalists. What about Uber as a cooperative of drivers? Uh, What are the possibilities for different models of ownership? Yeah, so this is the solution that I think ultimately is really best. And just from an economic point of view, is the most efficient way to go. These are called platform cooperatives. They're owned by the workers. My team did what I believe is the first academic study of one. It was a, or it is a cooperative owned by the photographers. It's a stock photography co-op, so not a personal service like a ride hail, but it works really well. The workers get a much higher fraction of the value being produced of the price because, you know, it's not going to investors. It's not going to management. The reason I I have such high hopes for platform cooperatives is that the technology is now doing so much of what management used to do. It's doing the quality control and the rating. It's doing the HR. It's doing the payments. It's doing the matching. It's doing just so much of what management did is that it kind of innovated away the role of management. So why do you need a management you really need a pretty skeletal staff of managers and the technology can do it. So it's a super efficient way. What's happening now is just a small group of people are extracting lots of value as a result of the fact that they own the company. And that's what you can avoid with a worker cooperative. So they're starting to form in cleaning, in ride hail. There's a a network of bicycle courier co-ops around Europe now There are freelancer co-ops that are growing rapidly. If we ask the question, what's the most efficient and best way for the most people to organize this sector, uh, that's the answer. That was Juliet Shore, author of After the Gig, just out from the University of California Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Trip, from a new album by the vastly underappreciated band, the Bush Tetras, who've been pumping out great music since 1979. Till next week, bye. Shit. Sure.